Welcome to the Pulp Nostalgia Audiocast. This week we have part two of The Man Without a Head by D.L. Champion, first published in the August 1949 Thrilling Detective. The story is also included in our recent Brick Pickle Pulp release, Thrilling Detective Pulp Tales Volume 5, available now in both print and ebook formats. You can find it at Amazon or other bookstores, or order directly from us at a discount, and that direct link is in the show notes. The Pulp Nostalgia Audiocast is a Brick Pickle Media production, copyright 2021. For more from Brick Pickle Media, visit www.brickpicklemedia.com. You can find a link to all of our books and our entire online store on the website. And just a reminder, if you like the show, please leave feedback on iTunes, Spotify, or wherever you listen. And with that, on with the show. Chapter 3, Skeleton Keys. Shelton Spooner ate a leisurely, if uneasy, breakfast as he pondered the matter of the purloined pawn ticket. He knew quite well that the police department would take an exceedingly dim view of Willie's action. He was still undecided as he pushed his chair away from the table and went over to Blount's office to acquaint himself with the latest developments. Willie Lightfoot was loitering in the corridor. His expression was that of a man lost completely in his own thoughts. Spooner knew better. A steady thrum of voices sounded from the office and Willie, he knew, was eavesdropping every syllable. Spooner slid quietly into the room. Blount sat at his desk and standing at his side was Bagel. Facing them was a short man of middle age with a dark and gleaming bald head. Blount glanced up. This, he announced, is Mr. Grimes, Mary Harbour's attorney. This is Shelton Spooner, our detective. Grimes acknowledged the introduction while Bagel sneered audibly the last word in Blount's sentence. The district attorney said sharply, Let's wave the formalities. Now, Mr. Grimes, can you tell us anything more about this fellow? Well, Grimes said, as I have already told you, his name is Weldon, and he was desperately in love with Miss Harbord. She'd have no part of him. He threatened her, but she laughed that off. So did I when she told me, and I'll never forgive myself for it. Bagel jotted something in a black notebook. Can you give us a description? Well, I only saw him once or twice, but I guess I can remember what he looks like. He was singularly tall, about six feet uh, four inches. Tremendous mop of blonde hair, light complexion, and he wears glasses. Bigel transcribed the data in his black book. Shouldn't be hard to find a man like that. Recall anything else about him? Well, there are his hands. He's got stubby fingers and unmanicured, uneven nails. There was a vague note of contempt in his tone as he spoke. Shelton Spooner glanced at him and knew why. Grimes' own hands were small, elegant, and well-kept. He gestured freely with them when speaking. It was apparent that the lawyer was inordinately proud of them. You've given us a first-rate description, said Bagel. I'll send an arm out at once. And what about my client's effects? asked Grimes. I guess you've been through everything by now. May I take charge of her property? Sure, said Bagel. Thanks for your evidence. The case seems cut and dried. We'll have this welded within 48 hours. Grimes nodded and left the room. Mr. Spooner, Bagel said, you may resume your routine duties. The police have this murder case well in hand. Spooner looked at him for a long, thoughtful moment. Then he turned on his heel and marched from the room. In the hall, he bumped into Willie Lightfoot. Willie, here's five dollars. Go to New York and get that radio out of hock. Willie beamed. Thought you was going to turn that ticket over to the coppers. I've changed my mind. Or rather, Mr. Grimes has changed it for me. Spooner spent the rest of the day lounging in his chair by the window overlooking the swimming pool. Despite his outward air of lassitude, he was a disturbed man. He asked himself for perhaps the twentieth time, why on earth had he sent Willie to town with the pawn ticket? True, he was working on something more than a hunch, but he had no reason to believe that he would get anywhere. Bagel certainly didn't like him, and if he was ever discovered, he had, 
he had swept the pawn tick and de-hocked the radio, he would be swimming in trouble. He sighed, blowing the ash from the end of his cigarette onto his vest. He'd done a little nosing around that morning in an effort to learn the antecedents of the dead woman. He now knew that she was a professional photographer with the studio on East 32nd Street in New York City, that she was apparently well off, and that she possessed no near relations. These facts, he reflected glumly, didn't add up to much when it came to solving a murder case. It was about four o'clock when Willie Lightfoot came into the room as quietly as a snake wearing gum shoes. In his hand, he was carrying a leather-covered portable radio, which he sat down on the table. He regarded it ruefully. I don't see how it's going to do us any good. It's just an ordinary radio. I looked over very carefully on the train. A sharp gust of wind came from the direction of the swimming pool. It smoked Shelton Spooner's toupee and blew a wisp of dust from its moth-eaten core. Did you look inside the radio? Willie blinked at him. Now why do I want to do that? I don't know anything about the workings of these machines. It's only an extension of your own theory. You asked me why a woman of apparent wealth would hawk her radio for five bucks. The obvious answer is that she was hiding something. On the same principle that crooks stash hot goods and check suitcases. Willie Lightfoot looked at Spooner admiringly. Godfrey, that's smart, Shelton. He pried the back from the radio and peered inside. He uttered a sharp, cackling exclamation and pulled a small white envelope from inside the portable. Willie's fingers groped inside the envelope and withdrew a photographic negative. He uttered a guttural sound of triumph and carried the negative to the window and held it up to the waning light. Shelton, it's a picture! A picture the woman took while she was being killed! Sure. Then after she was killed, she got up, pawned the radio, and came back to lie down until I found her. Willie's nod indicated he appreciated the, the sarcastic logic. But I tell you, it's a picture of her being killed. Spooner took the negative away from him and examined it. It was none too clear, yet there was a woman lying on the floor with a man standing over her. There was a white ring about the woman's throat, which could well be blood. Her features were unmistakably those of Mary Harbord. Spooner would have been given a great deal to have been able to see the man's face in the picture, but at the moment it had been shot, he had averted his head. He stood over the woman in a crouching position, and his body had photographed excellently, but his face was turned in the opposite direction of the lens. Spooner scratched his head. His toupee moved warily with his fingers. He stared out at the dusk and swimming pool for a long time. His brow was corrugated in thought. I don't figure at all. At all. That's a picture of her being killed, all right. But how could she have took it? I don't know. But the hunch I was working on is getting stronger and stronger. He paused for a moment. You remember that bunch of skeleton keys you bought a couple of years ago? Sure, and you bawled me off for wasting money. Everybody knows detectives got to have pass keys. Do we still have them? Sure, my desk in town. You mean we're going to use them? You mean we're going to break in somewhere, Shelton? We're going to break in somewhere. But don't be so darn enthusiastic about it. Shortly before midnight, one of Willie Lightfoot's bargain skeleton keys admitted him and Spooner to the studio on East 32nd Street, which had been occupied by Mary Harbord. Willie looked like a happy and hopped-up housebreaker. Spooner resembled a burglar who's quite sure the cops will burst in on him before his task is done. The studio was a large square room littered with various props and equipment. A door on its left gave onto a small hall, which in turn led to the kitchen, bath, and bedroom. Well, what are we looking for? I haven't the slightest idea, said Spooner, but let's look, hope, and pray. Willie went to work on the three rooms off the hall. Spooner proceeded to frisk the studio, first going through the bulging photographic files. He had looked at several hundred pictures before he came across the headless man. It was a clear, well-developed picture of a group at the beach. Mary Harbord was one of that group, and standing beside her was a man in bathing trucks. The extraordinary thing about him was that he had no head. He had been clipped neatly from the photograph. 
Spooner looked at the print for a long time. A dozen thoughts struggled for dominance in his brain and became inextricably mixed up. At that point, Willie wandered in from the hall. I didn't find nothing. Went through a bunch of canceled checks, figuring she went up and paying big sums to someone. Was Weldon, maybe. I thought if we could prove that, we... Cancel checks? Said Spooner suddenly. Then he added tensely, Tell me, did you find he made out to Grimes? Willie shook his head. You certain? Positive. Why should you make out checks to him? He's your lawyer, isn't he? Did you ever hear of a lawyer who never sent a bill? As he spoke, Spooner was replacing the pictures. He left the print of the headless man until last. He studied it for a long time, then finally put it back in the files. Look, I got a theory. Just when this dame is getting killed, a fellow comes along with the camera. Sees the murder through the window, and he takes a shot of it. Instead of calling the coppers, he figures he'll blackmail a murderer. But he wants to hide the negative, so the killer can't take it away from him. So he plants it in that radio and hocks the radio. How's that? He looked at Spooner like a clever seal awaiting its rewarding fish. It may be closer than you know. Was your theory flexible enough to provide this guy who took the picture was in an airplane? Airplane? Why? Otherwise, how could you shoot a picture of a room on the 8th floor of the Verdun Hotel? Ow. You've got good eyes. Look up Grimes' address in the telephone book. Willie named a lower Broadway address. He rubbed his hands in anticipation and said, We're going to break in there too, Shelton? We're going to break in there too. And I hope you're still happy when you face the judge in the morning. You're crazy, and they'll catch us. We're a couple pretty smart detectives. It was almost four o'clock when they emerged from the subway into the deserted reaches of Lower Broadway. Again, Willie's bargain keys proved effective. On the third try, the lock turned, and they entered the office of Gregory Grimes. What are we looking for this time? More checks. I want to look through Grimes' cancel checks. Let's see if we can find them. Chapter 4. A Neatly Wrapped Up Murder Case after a ten-minute search, they found the checks bundled neatly in a wooden box behind a row of filing cabinets. Spooner rubbed the sleep from his eyes and went to work. When he had finished, he carefully replaced everything he had disturbed, stretched, and yawned. Some of Willie's enthusiasm had drained away. He yawned, too. He peered out the window toward the rising sun beyond the East River. Can we go to bed now, Shelton? You can. Go to your room and lie down. I've still got a day's work ahead of me. I'll call for you when I'm ready to go back to the hotel. A footfall sounded in the hall outside. Spooner's heart thumped in his breast. A key was inserted in the lock. The door suddenly opened. A charwoman came in. She was a wide woman with a prominent jaw and an even more prominent posterior. She carried a bucket in one hand, a mop that looked rather like Shelton Spooner's toupee in the other. I didn't know there was anyone in here, she said in a voice a little suspicion. Ah, yes, said Spooner. Been here all night, preparing a difficult brief. Very important case. The charwoman softened a little. Willie Lightfoot said, Yes, sir, a murder case. Then he threw his head back and unleashed one of his more eerie cackles. The charwoman, her auditory system somewhat shaken, backed up. Spooner seized the opportunity to escape into the hall. Willie followed along after him. The woman was still staring at them as they disappeared around a corner of the corridor. Where are you going to? Willie said when they reached the street. To see a friend of mine, a police reporter. Then I'm going to spend some time in the criminal courts building. You better go to bed. I might as well. By Godfrey, I wouldn't if they still had burlesque in this sissy town. Shelton Spooner completed his investigations late in the afternoon. He traveled uptown to his own furnished room, showered, and changed his clothes. Then he lay down on his bed and took an unintended nap. He slept for several hours. Thus, it was some time after midnight when he and Willie Lightfoot returned to hold Oliver Dan. Despite the lateness of the hour, there was a light burning in Blount's office. Spooner entered without knocking, Willie trailing along unobtrusively behind him. Blount sat at his desk, his usual pink cheeks haggard. Facing him and frowning over a cigar was Bagel. Great grief! Blount said to the district attorney. You've got to do something. 
He smote his desk indignantly. That pompous hick chief Maynard is freeloading on me to the tune of $60 a day. Bagel took the cigar from his mouth to answer. Before he could speak, Blount continued in outraged accents. He's commandeered cabana number three. He's living there with his two of his men. Guarding the hotel, he says. Why, I can rent that place for 50 bucks per diem without meals. Take it easy, said Bagel. You don't want another killing, do you? I don't want the first one, but can't you coppers do something? Why have you found this man Weldon? Bagel shrugged. I don't know. There's a four-state alarm out, and he's an easy guy to spot from the description. Heaven only knows why you haven't heard something. I know, said Shelton Spooner modestly. They both looked at him. What the devil do you mean? asked Bagel. I mean that I know why you've heard nothing of Weldon. Why? Because he doesn't exist. He's a figment. Figment pigment, growled Blount. What are you talking about? If Mr. Bagel will come to our cabana, said Spooner, I'll place the neatly wrapped up murder case in his lap. You, Blount, may go to bed and sleep easily. A somewhat dubious bagel followed Spooner and Willie across the well-kept lawn past the cabana where Chief Maynard snored in freeloading luxury to Spooner's quarters. In the living room, Spooner sank into the padded chair by the open window. Willie leaned up against the wall and Bagel stood looking at Shelton Spooner. First, said Spooner, let me make a confession. He related the facts of the purloined pawn ticket, the redeeming of the radio and the discovery of the negative. Then he took the negative from his pocket and handed it to Bagel. Bagel took it and his face grew grim. Withholding evidence, obstructing justice. You know what's going to happen to you? Nothing, said Shelton Spooner calmly. Not after I've solved your murder case for you. It'd be very bad publicity if you indicted me after that. The papers might label it professional jealousy. Bagel grunted. He took the negative from its envelope and handed it up to the light. Then he uttered a tremulous oath. It's a picture of the harbored woman being killed. How could it have been taken? Let's go back to Weldon, said Spooner. It had been my intention to hand that ticket over to you until I heard Grimes describe Weldon. Then I decided to keep it and find out why Grimes had told such a prodigious lie. Why? How do you know he lied? Suppose you wanted to throw someone off the trail by a description. Naturally, you use opposites. That is, your details would be exactly the opposite of the facts. Grimes said Weldon was tall. Grimes is short. Weldon had thick hair. Grimes is bald. Weldon wore glasses. Grimes doesn't. And the payoff was the hands. Hands? Surely. Grimes has elegant hands, the hands of a violinist. He's very proud of them, so he had another opposite. He said Weldon's fingers were stubby, his nails were unmanicured and uneven. Now all the things put together don't describe anyone positively so much as they describe Grimes negatively. So? said Bagel slowly. In addition to everything else, it's too pat a description for a guy Grimes said he'd only seen once or twice. I decided to investigate. Yesterday, using a passkey, I examined the studio of Miss Harbord and searched Grimes' office. Ha! said Bagel. Unlawful entry. Unlawful entry, agreed Spooner blandly, but before you sign the warrant, listen to what I found. I'm listening, and it better be good. Willie Lightfoot cackled. How good can you get? We just busted a murder case open. As he uttered the last word, his old eyes narrowed. He cocked his left ear like a bird dog as if he heard something inaudible to the others. Among other things, said Spooner, I found a photographic print of a man whose head had been neatly cut out of the picture. What of it? Shelton Spooner sighed. It's simple enough. Here we have a negative of a man apparently murdering a woman, but his face isn't showing that negative. It could be anyone, so a professional photographer cuts a head from another picture, superimposes it on the negative, and fakes a picture which clearly shows the man's face. Bagel thought this over and nodded his head slowly. Blackmail. 
Blackmail, of course. Mary Harbord was blackmailing Grimes. Bagel frowned. You need more proof. I've got it. Mary Harbord was Grimes' client, yet among her canceled checks, there was never one made out to him. Among his canceled checks, there were several, totaling thousands of dollars, made out to her. Can you conceive of a lawyer who pays his client and never collects a fee himself? I still don't get it. How could she blackmail Grimes with a picture of him killing her? It's impossible. Moreover, that radio was hot before she was killed, so how could it have been made? That was another question with an obvious answer. Since it is impossible that the woman in the picture is Mary Harbord, the resemblance may only be explained by assuming the woman is a close relative, probably a sister. He paused and asked slowly, Grimes was married to Ruth Harbord, Mary's sister. She died in an auto accident three years ago. Bagel frowned. But she died in an accident. Wait, said Spooner. I picked up a lot of facts today and I filled in the holes with conjecture. At the time of Ruth's death, she and her husband lived in the country. One night, Mary calls on them. She drives up and approaches the house. The Grimes couple are having a tremendous fight in the living room as Mary approaches. And remember, Mary has her camera with her. As Mary hesitates outside the living room window, Grimes suddenly grabs a knife and kills his wife. Almost instinctively, Mary shoots the picture. Then she is too frightened to enter the house. She runs back to her car and returns home. First, she considers calling the police. Then she hesitates. She knows Grimes is a rich man, a playboy who has often quarreled with Ruth about his extramarital affairs. Perhaps she can take a better revenge in the law and do herself some good, too. She can blackmail him. She can force him to live in constant terror of exposure. She waits to see what Grimes' next move is. The next day, she finds out. She reads that Ruth has been killed in an auto accident. Grimes, of course, has faked this. She develops her negative in order to show him a print. Then she sees his face doesn't show. So she takes an old picture and makes a composite print in which Grimes' face shows clearly. She makes him pay through the nose. There was a long silence in the room. Against the wall, Willie Lightfoot shifted uneasily. Again, he cocked an ear in the direction of the window and a puzzled frown wrinkled his brow. And of course, she's terrified that someday we'll find that negative and know he's been duped, Bagel said. When she planned to come here for a vacation, she was afraid to leave it in her studio because Grimes might break in and find it. By the same token, she was afraid to bring it here. If it came, it is too easy to search a hotel room. So she hid in the radio and pawned it. Right, said Spooner. Grimes came here either to make another payment or have a showdown. They fought. He got crazy mad and killed her as he killed her sister. Willie Lightfoot shifted uneasily along the wall, like an animal aware of some danger too high-pitched for human senses. The evidence, said Spooner, is in her studio in Grimes' office. The cancel checks, the mutilated photograph, and you already have the negative. She'll be able to make sense out of that. Easily, said Bagel, rubbing his hands. I'll make, take the first train in the morning. Shelton Spooner saw the automatic come over the edge of the windowsill before he saw the hand that held it. Then a familiar figure suddenly materialized. Grimes threw his leg across the sill and stood in the room. Shelton Spooner closed his eyes and sighed warily. Just as he thought he rid himself of trouble, it confronted him again, this time with a gun in its hand. Willie Lightfoot pushed himself against the wall and achieved the impossible in making himself more unobtrusive than ever. Bagel, pompous and officious though he was, did not lack courage. Grimes! Put up that gun and consider yourself under arrest. Grimes' single word of reply cast serious reflection upon the bagel ancestry. He turned to Spooner. You snooping gunshoe. When the claiming woman described who was in my office last night, I knew it was you two. I figured you were up to something and I drove here tonight for a showdown. You're a little late, said Shelton Spooner. The devil I am. I was exactly in time. As I walked over from my car, I heard you talking, so I waited outside by the window and listened. 
You've got a beautiful theory, Gumshoe, but you'll never be able to prove it's true. We have quite enough evidence to proceed, said Bagel. You won't have in the morning. After I've incapacitated you mugs so you can't give the alarm, I'm going back to town, and I assure you there'll be no evidence at all tomorrow. There'll be no checks, either Mary's or mine. There'll be no photograph with a missing head. And I'll just take that photo negative right now, Bagel. No, said Bagel stoutly. I'm an officer of the law. I... Chapter 5 Willie's Hearing Aid The sentence was interrupted by the sudden slashing motion of Grimes' gun barrel. It cracked with a sickening sound on the lawyer's skull. A stupid expression came over his face, his knees buckled, and he fell. As he did so, Grimes stooped over quickly and snatched the envelope containing the negative from his nerveless fingers. Now, said Grimes, facing Spooner, you'll drag Bagel into the bathroom. You'll go in there yourselves. I'm going to tie up and gag you. I want enough time to do that. What I'm going to do before you can have the copper stop me. You can't get away with it, said Spooner, in a tone which indicated he thought Grimes had a very fair chance of getting away with it indeed. <laughs> the dickens I won't. With no cancel checks, with neither negative nor that headless print, all you have is a theory. I might serve 30 days for assaulting Bagel, but that's all. Now, get moving. There was a small crash in the room. Spooner started and Grimes jerked his head around. Willie Lightfoot stood, staring down at the shattered hearing aid on the floor. Godfrey, I dropped it. It's busted. I won't be able to hear a thing. Never mind that thing. Get going. Pick up Bagel. Hurry. Shelton Spooner crossed the room to the place where Bagel lay. As he passed Willie, he received a leering wink. Spooner bent over Bagel and said plaintively, I can't lift him alone. Grimes pointed his gun at Willie Lightfoot's stomach. Come on, help him. Get Bagel into the bathroom. Willie leaned forward and cupped a hand around his ear. Hey, huh? How's that? Grimes lifted his voice. Help your partner. Get into the bathroom with Bagel. I can't hear you. You have to talk louder. Now, it is a psychological fact that when one voice in a group is raised, all voices are raised. When a man leans forward and cups his ear, the tendency is for the speaker to automatically shout. Grimes did just that. The bathroom, yelled. Go to the bathroom. Take bail, you old fool, or I'll shoot you. Willie shook his head helplessly. He turned to Spooner. What's he saying, Shelton? Spooner drew a deep breath and shouted at the top of his voice. He says for you to help drag Bagel to the bathroom or he'll shoot you. Oh. No, I don't have to go to the bathroom. Thank you. Grimes' face was livid. He put his lips against Willie's ear and roared like a bull in a slaughterhouse. Shelton Spooner lifted his own voice and assured Willie with all the decibels he could command that he would be shot if he failed to carry out Grimes' order. The room was a madhouse and the door burst suddenly open and Chief Maynard and two of his men charged into the room. What's going on here? What's all the yelling about? Who's like Bagel? Grimes' only reply was a single desperate shot he fired. The bullet lodged in the plaster of the walls. The policeman overpowered him. Blount, clad in a bathrobe and yellow slippers, wandered into the cabana. Great grief, he said. The whole hotel is awake. Switchboard floodeth complaints. What's happened? As Bagel and Grimes were taken from the room, Spooner explained the night's events to Maynard and Blount. When he finished the recital, Blount looked admiringly across the room at Willie. Well, lucky the old guy is deaf as a post. Double lucky he broke his hearing when he did. He slapped Spooner on the back as Maynard wrung the Spooner hand. Blount lowered his voice to a confidential whisper. 
There'll be a bonus in this for you, Shelton. You can give a percentage up to Willie. Willie Lightfoot's voice rose high and shrill. A percentage? If it wasn't for me, we'd all be locked up in the bathroom and Grimes would be a free man. I want half. Blount looked across the room in amazement. Thought the old man was stone deaf. Not, said Shelton Spooner, when you mention money, whiskey, or pinup girls. He grinned across the room at Willie and abstractedly scratched his head. His toupee moved toward his left ear and hung there like a piece of dead and hoary moss. And that's it. The End of the Man Without a Head by DL Champion. Hope you enjoyed this story. Please tune in again next week for the next episode of the Pulp Nostalgia audio cast. Just a reminder, if you like the show, please leave feedback on iTunes, Spotify, or wherever you listen.